What Ehrman says is that they made up this connection to Luke to connect this gospel to Paul. Uh, there are some people who would be way better qualified to make it up with than that. If I want to claim Paul's authority for this gospel, why not, if nothing else, if I'm willing just to make stuff up, gospel according to Paul, gospel according to Timothy, why not gospel according to Timothy Paul? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that would be great. Welcome to The Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. But along the way, we talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and in receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome to Season 3 of the Apologetics Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought it was three chords in the truth. It's three chords in the truth. That's the podcast. Yeah. It was. It was three chords in the truth. And then Timothy decided he didn't want to have a fancy, clever name anymore. And he wanted the name to make more sense to what we do. And it'd be easier to find us if people are actually looking for apologetics content, whatever. He's just being all pragmatic on me. So here we are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, we kind of want listeners. That's the thing. And we want listeners to be able to find it. And so, yes, the name is now the Apologetics Podcast. Three Chords in the Truth has not gone away. That's just the episodes we do on movies and music now. So you'll see those come up from time to time. We've got some amazing music episodes planned for this season. And maybe there'll be some great movies out this season that we can talk about as well. So <laughs> I sure hope so. I feel like it's been like seven years since I've been to the movie theater, like I'm yeah. in exile or something. <laughs> So. Well, something else that's new in season three is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. Indiana, because you, you used to be in Indiana, and so it still has a fond place in your heart, doesn't it, absolutely. Indiana? Absolutely. fond place absolutely. in your heart. You have moved to Texas, but Texas Jones and the Raiders of Church History just did not sound correct. It just didn't sound right. So we went with Indiana. Yeah, we couldn't really figure out how to make like Texas Ranger Walker and this church history thing that we're doing work. So we just had to stick with what we originally came up with. And so to refresh your memory of what we're doing in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History, what we're doing in that is that we are drawing randomly some artifact, something we have chosen from church history, and then we are going to put those into battle against one another to see who wins. And so Garrick, go ahead and pull out whatever you've got for your church history this time. I was really hoping this wouldn't be the first one, but perhaps this is God's judgment upon me. This artifact, which is considered a relic, is known as the Holy Prepuce. Otherwise, maybe you don't know that word, and so perhaps the Holy Foreskin would... <laughs> would help you understand a little bit better. So basically, 
this relic is assumed to be a remnant, a piece of flesh remnant from the circumcision of Jesus, our Lord, who as a Jew would have been circumcised on the eighth day. And this item, this artifact was gifted in the year 800, was gifted to Pope Leo III by King Charlemagne, right? And traveled around and traded hands and it was disappeared. It was looted ironically during the sack of Rome in 1527. I'll leave that there. But it didn't disappear forever. It showed up in a village. I just forgot the name, but that's okay. Where it existed for a long time until the year 1983. And in fact, interesting fact, at one point, the Vatican was so tired of hearing about this relic, (laughs) right, that they threatened excommunication for anyone that brought it up, that went and made a pilgrimage, that did not stop this village from, I think it was an Italian village from, they were very proud of it. They would march it on the streets every year in the uh, Feast of Circumcision. And, but apparently in 1983, it disappeared for good. It's said that a local priest stole it. Of course, some people, you're always going to have your conspiracy theorists who think that someone from the Vatican stole it or someone stole it and sold it to the Vatican, whatever. Either way, it's gone. As far as we know, haven't seen it. It's probably locked up in secret Pope chambers of the of the Vatican. And so anyways, that's how I'm starting. It's difficult to foresee how you're going to beat out a divine foreskin on well, round one. It just reveals a lot about us in terms of what I have to. <laughs> so what mine is, is a pile of manure from the third defenestration of Prague. <laughs> so let's re- kind of think about this particular issue. This is in 1618. Now let's just note that the word defenestration does not get used enough. There are just not enough opportunities in life. It was a few years ago. I had determined I'm going to find some way to use the word defenestration, which means throwing something through a window. And about five or six years ago, I had my chance because there was an angry customer at the Starbucks drive-thru and they defenestrated a drink back in <laughs> the store. And so I got a chance to use defenestration for that. So defenestration means throwing something through a window. So the pile of manure from the third defenestration of Prague. So Catholics and Protestants, they met together in 1618, and the Protestant representatives in this meeting, they threw two Catholic regents out the window. It's about 70 feet above the ground. As one of them falls out the window, he says, Mary, help me. And so one of the Protestants says, well, let's see if your Mary does help you. He goes to the window, looks down, and the guy's still moving. He says, his Mary did help him. But the reason the way that Mary helped him, if, if indeed Mary did, was that he landed in a massive pile of manure. And so the Catholic representatives, they ended up surviving. But nonetheless, this kicked off the 30 Years War, which is one of the most horrific wars in the history of, of humanity, uh, certainly in Europe up to that time. There were more than 5 million people died in this war that began with the third defenestration of Prague. But I want to emphasize that word third. Yes, I was going to ask this question. This has happened twice before by this point. Now, let's all in Prague. So this happened two times before. It happened in 1419 when the Hussites threw seven members of the city council out the window and they died. Those that were thrown out the window. And it happened again in 1483 when a mob of Bohemians killed seven. And then after they were dead, defenestrated them. So there have been three defenestrations of Prague 
I don't know what's going on in Prague, but if you're throwing people out the window often enough that you've done it three times, you really need to check your issues that you've got at that point. So. This is also an excellent illustration of why church history is important, because these people should have known I'm visiting Prague. I need to avoid windows. I need to stay away from windows. There are going to be people that might be upset at me. So avoid windows. Church history saves lives, friends, saves lives. If you go to visit Prague, stay away from windows. And if you do visit Prague and there's a window, make sure there's manure underneath the window. (laughs) That's right. So let's just think about it today, folks, what you have learned. You have learned about the foreskin of Jesus and the defenestrations of Prague. This is what we teach you. This is what you get out of the Apologetics Podcast, folks. Yeah, this, friends, is the stuff of sanctification. Hey, was there a fourth, fifth, sixth defenestration? Do you know if— Not to the best of my knowledge. I did look. I did look to try to find out because we just want to know these are the topics that we really need to find out out and learn about to save lives, to help people understand and save lives. Well, speaking of topics, moving on to topics that perhaps actually may be a part of your sanctification. The topic for this episode is who really wrote the Gospels and why does it even matter for us to have this discussion, for us to come to a decision on this, if you will. Yeah, because many skeptics, they claim that the Gospels were not written by eyewitnesses or people who knew Jesus or anybody even connected with the people who knew Jesus. And according to a popular New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman, who, of course, makes the rounds on all the different television shows, all those things like that, you've probably seen him. Whenever they bring up an issue of New Testament or biblical studies, he's one of those people that they put on to talk about this. But he's written a lot of popular books on the Gospels, on Jesus, things like that. And he says there is no way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John could have actually written the Gospels that bear their names. He says there's no way they could have that these texts come from anonymous people. We don't know who wrote them, but they certainly weren't written by eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses. Yeah, so here's what Ermond says about the Gospels, to quote him. says, when Christians recognized the need for apostolic authorities, they attributed these books— to apostles and close companions of the apostles. Scholars continue to call these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as a matter of convenience. They have to be called something, and it doesn't make much sense to call them George, Fred, Jim, Sam, which I would agree with him. That wouldn't make much sense. But I think he's just insulted. Yeah, he's insulted everybody who's named George, Jim, Fred, or Sam, because they're probably like, well, I think that it'd be great to have a gospel with my name on it. So As soon as he started with George, I thought he was going to go like with the Beatles, right? I thought he was going to give them, but. <laughs> that would have been much better. It did much better. So why do some scholars, this is what we want to talk about first, we really want to get down and really dig into this and ask why some scholars say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write the New Testament Gospels. And there's three reasons why some scholars say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could not have written the New Testament Gospels. Yeah, one is an assumption, a historical assumption, basically saying, well, these first disciples, they weren't capable of writing these books. Largely, they were uneducated. They were of a lower class, probably illiterate. Of course, the argument has been made that they were perhaps too young to really write something of this magnitude, right? And so, yeah, Ehrman's like, it's just unlikely that these disciples of Jesus would have, to quote him, played the decisive role in the literary compositions that have come down through history under their names. Yeah, 
And there's a little bit Acts, of biblical, Acts 4, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, a, there's a little bit of biblical proof that you can point to that could make you think this. Acts chapter four and verse thirteen it says Peter and John were uneducated and untrained, and so you can work from that. And say, look, if they were uneducated, untrained, and if they were the rest of the disciples and the early followers of Jesus were also uneducated and untrained, doesn't it make sense to say that they couldn't have written these? And especially since you know, let's kind of make the case: Peter, Andrew, James, John, they're Aramaic speaking fishermen. And sometimes people make some arguments they probably shouldn't make in terms of in favor of this. I want to really make sure we're honest about the strengths and weaknesses of what we're saying, because the truth is Peter, Andrew, James, and John were Aramaic-speaking fishermen. I don't think that's the whole story. We'll talk about that in a bit, but that is part of the story. And sometimes people look at Matthew, and it's true that tax collectors at least had some capacity to write. They had to as part of their job keeping records. But the fact is that Matthew was a lower-level toll collector, we might say. He was what in Greek is called a telones, not an architelones. That is to say, a lower-level tax collector, not like Zacchaeus, who was an arch tax collector or a chief tax collector. So a lot of the things sometimes people attribute to Matthew in terms of education, in terms of capacities to do different things, write different things, probably weren't as much part of Matthew's life as you think. Same thing with Luke. A lot of times people say, well, he was a physician. He was a doctor, so he was highly educated. It's like, ah, no. That's reading us back into them. That's reading a 21st, 20th century idea back into that time period. The fact is that a lot of times physicians weren't at least literarily trained, and sometimes they weren't trained very much at all in the ancient world. So we've got to give credit where credit is due in this argument. I want us to be honest about the weaknesses and recognize some of these things that are really important. Yeah, Timothy, question comes to mind. So if I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm just one who just reads enough scripture to be familiar with it, a question comes to mind like, hey, I remember somewhere that Paul in one of his letters, Paul, who we have no doubt could have written was literate, right? That that's not an argument against Paul and, and his writing, but he seems to have had people do some writing for him, right? Could that play any role into the authorship of the Gospels when it comes to this issue, this objection that we're talking about? Yeah, I think it should. I think it really, really should if you look at this, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but yeah, it is something that we should take into account that often isn't. Because on the one hand, the Gospels are these elegantly structured texts. They're simple. Luke is a little bit of a, a more elevated Greek, but the Gospels as a whole are simple. But there's a lot of plays on words that work only in Greek. Matthew is just intricately structured. And so we could say none of the early Christians could have written these Gospels. But the fact is, it's more complicated than that in terms of literacy in the ancient world. There's all these different things that we can point to about this. One of them is, even if these men were unable to compose a gospel. Let's just grant that for a moment. I'm just going to grant that for a moment and say, these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, could not write a gospel. They could have written by what, using what were called emanuenses or scribes. That was commonly done. And as you pointed out, Romans 16.22 mentions Tertius, who is a scribe of Paul, who helped Paul, even though Paul was a very literate person, he had assistance. We had Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, that Silvanus or Silas helped Peter with that letter. That was commonly done. Now, those of you who are in college, seminary, graduate school, don't do this on your papers. In our culture, in our time, that's called plagiarism. That's called cheating, okay? And they had a whole different view of literary production than we do today. 
that's just a very different view. It's a very different cultural perspective that they had. And even Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian, very literate guy. But do you know what he tells us in his story of his own life, his autobiography? He tells us that, in fact, he used Emanuensis, scribes, helpers to be able to help him write his history that he wrote in Greek. And so because of that, we shouldn't automatically jump to the assumption just because they were illiterate, just because they were uneducated, assuming they were, that suddenly they couldn't have written these. Not only that, the phrase uneducated, untrained, that's in Acts that we mentioned earlier, Acts chapter 4, probably just means they didn't have formal training with a recognized Jewish teacher like Paul did. Paul had formal training under Gamaliel, a Jewish rabbi. They just didn't have that. But nonetheless, even if they were completely illiterate, they could have used a scribe to be able to write what they wrote, and it would have been considered to be their own work if either the form or the content came from them. So really, that argument is just a really weak argument against the idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels, unless the only way you define what is being written by somebody is that they literally sat down with a pen and wrote the entire thing themselves. If that's what you define as writing, but if you define it that way, you are taking a 19th, 20th, 21st century concept and forcing it back into the first century illegitimately. A question going back just a little bit, Timothy, you made a point about an assumption that folks would make about Luke being a physician, highly educated, but that's, we're reading something back in. What about our understanding of what it is to be literate? 21st century literacy and literacy in the first century? Is there a significant enough difference that we need to understand some background context here? Yeah, there is actually. So one of the things we often in our culture, we link high class, upper class with high education. That's something like that. And we define education in terms of, largely in terms of capacity to read and write, or at least that's assumed in that. So we assume that. There's certain things we assume at that level. That was simply not the case in the ancient world. So in some sense, it was a vocational or job skill. <laughs> You're being able to read and write was more in terms of that. Some people learned it, some people didn't, but it actually didn't affect their social status. In fact, you might have somebody who was illiterate, who was a very wealthy person, who had a slave who could write and read for that person, and that would be perfectly okay. And furthermore, beyond that, it's that reading, writing, we group those together. If you can read, you can also write. If you can write, you can also read. That simply was not the case in the first century. There were people who could read, but not write. And surprisingly, there were people who could write but not read. That is to say, they would be able to copy things down and they would be able to copy text. And that was their job. They had no clue what they were copying. They didn't know what they were copying. They were just copying words. They're actually pretty reliable copyists because they can't riff on something and say, you know what? I like it better this way and change it. They can't because they're just writing and they don't know the words they're writing. And so because of that, it's a much more complex thing. We view those together. So you have people who could read, but not write, write, but not read. You had people who would articulate things that were written down by somebody else. And that was still their production at that point. When they did that, you also had people who worked with others to bring their words to fruition. All those things were at play in the ancient world. It was a much more complex literary environment than we have in our world. Yeah. And it's also good to remember that we're still in an oral culture and tradition at this point. So another objection is that the earliest manuscripts, the original manuscripts of these gospels, they were anonymous. 
They didn't have the names on them. They did not explicitly state who wrote them. They don't have the beautiful, clear introductions that Paul gives us. And so that is used as an objection. So the argument is they were anonymous, and we attributed them to their authors later. So let's jump into that one. That's a really common one. That's one of the most common arguments. And we got to figure out what first we mean by anonymous, because some people are, and this actually isn't a bad pushback right now, but as you'll see as we unfold this, some people are saying, you're not anonymous. I look at my Bible, it says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are not anonymous. (laughs) And if we say, sometimes anonymous is meant in this way, okay? Sometimes it's meant in this way. It means that the gospels themselves in the text don't tell us explicitly who wrote them. They just don't. John may give us hints, but he still doesn't say, I am John, I am writing this. Luke speaks in the first person, but doesn't give us his name. And so in some sense, in that sense, they are anonymous, okay? But there's reasons why, and one of the main reasons why is because they are writing in the tradition of the Old Testament history books. And if you look at books like First Second Chronicles, Joshua, certain ones like that, they don't tell us explicitly who wrote them, nor do they intend to, because that's not what they're up to. That's not what they're doing. And the New Testament gospels are kind of written in that general tradition. Now, but here's how it's sometimes meant. And this is a part that is really dishonest as far as I'm concerned. People say, oh, the earliest manuscripts, the very first manuscripts are anonymous. And many of these people who repeat that and parrot that have never actually looked at a real New Testament manuscript and don't even know what they're talking about in that. But let's actually think about these manuscripts. Let's actually think about these. I have to give a disclaimer now. I have to give everyone a disclaimer now that this is the point of the episode where Timothy gets to do a deep dive into funny named documents that are thousands of years old. So prepare yourselves. Yeah, and just know that I'm coming off of having been a week at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, looking at these, not the ones that I'm listing here, but looking at different manuscripts. You know, I'm coming off of this, so that's all fresh in my head right now. got to tell someone. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) So if we look at the manuscripts themselves, okay? If you look at them, there's one called P52, okay? Papyrus Rillins Greek 457 is the proper name of it, P52. So P52, if you say, oh, it doesn't include a title and it's one of the earliest manuscripts, it's like, yeah. Did you look at it? It's about the size of a business card, and it's from the middle of a page, and it has little bits of John chapter 18 on it. That's what it's got on it, but you don't know. The fact is that manuscript, it doesn't survive sufficiently intact for you to know if it had a title. So to call that anonymous is really dishonest. To call that anonymous, you just don't know. The same thing with P90, another very early manuscript that has fragments of John chapter 18 and 19 on it. It's also known as Papyrus Oxyrhynchus 3523. That one, once again, second, third, second century manuscript, probably second century, but maybe early third century, it does not survive sufficiently intact for you to know. It's the middle of a page. It's these fragments. One more of the earliest manuscripts that people say this about P104, Papyrus Oxyrhynchus 64, 4404. It's got part of Matthew chapter 21. And that part of Matthew chapter 21 that it has, again, middle of the page, the part that deteriorates on a manuscript is the edges of the pages, the top, the bottom, where often, especially the top that they would have the manuscript titles. If you say those are anonymous, you're saying something is misleading at that point. That's really misleading to say those are anonymous because they don't survive sufficiently intact for them to have titles. And it's dishonest to say anything else. Now, here's what is more important. 
The moment that we start to find manuscripts that survive sufficiently intact to find a title, bingo, they have titles. <laughs> they have titles at that point. And not only do they have titles, that they have the same authors connected to the same gospels. There are some variation in the titles. Bart Ehrman, again, makes a big deal about this, says there's variations in the titles. All right, there are variations. There's two variations. One of them is gospel according to, with the author's name, and the other one is just according to the author's name without gospel, Evangelion kata Ioannin versus kata Ioannin, gospel according to John versus just according to John. But the moment, the moment we begin seeing in the Magdalene papyri and P66, P75, these manuscripts, the moment we begin seeing them surviving sufficiently intact to have a title, then they've got the titles, and they're the titles we still have today with only a minor variation. There are no anonymous manuscripts of the Gospels. There are fragments that haven't survived sufficiently intact to know if there was a title with an author. Um, Timothy, I want to ask a question on behalf of our listeners that's related to this. You have interacted a lot with Ehrman, and this move that he makes about the variations, right? Making a really big deal of the variations. He's not wrong. He's not being dishonest, but his rhetoric seems to be a bit misleading. So real quickly, can you explain why it's a big deal that this variation isn't a big deal? Not just in the title, but just bigger picture of reliability of scripture in light of a lot of the claims and arguments that Ehrman has made popular. Yeah. So the reason it's not a big deal is because what matters most for us is not the form of the title, but the author to whom it's connected. That's what matters for us. And so what's happening is taking something that really it does matter in terms of textual criticism, in terms of reconstructing things. It does really matter that some manuscripts have kata yoanin according to John, and some have Evangelion kata yoanin, and the same with all the other. That, that matters. It really does matter. It matters for us reconstructing a text. It really does. It matters for us reconstructing a history. But when you leap from that to making assumptions or even declarations about the authorship, that's where it becomes misleading. And so sometimes you can take something that is technically true in textual criticism or in some other field, but then if you transfer it over to somewhere else, you need to be more clear about what you're saying and what you're meaning. This is one of those cases where clarity and intellectual integrity asks us to ask, well, what types of variations are we really talking about here? Yeah. And on a bigger picture, friends, Ehrman does this with not just titles, but he does it with the entirety of, of the New Testament, right? He, he will put out a number, a staggering number as far as, hey, there are this many variations or discrepancies between the existing manuscripts we have in the New Testament, right? And this number will, when you first see it here, you'll be like, my goodness, what in the world? And again, he's not being dishonest. What he says is true. It's an accurate number. But 99% of those variations are exactly like the one that's just been explained. It's something that, hey, yeah, this is a, an important discussion to have historically and as text critics and whatnot, but what it does not impact, which is the implication from Ehrman, is the authority, the reliability of Scripture. And of course, we as, as Christians would say those things because they are both written by human authors and a divine author. And these are all things that 
that's an assumption that Ehrman has thrown out the window. So we have our first objection. First disciples weren't capable of composing these books. Second being the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels were anonymous and kind of related. Another objection is since the titles of the four Gospels match, especially the form of them, right? The the title for each gospel is according to so-and-so or gospel according to so-and-so, that this is actually evidence of the author's names being added later. So the argument would go, sure, once you find these manuscripts that have survived or intact, you do see these titles, but by the fact that they are all in this exact same form, one of these two forms, that's taken as evidence to these titles were added later, these manuscripts are later. That's kind of the argument. Yeah, and that's actually the strongest argument. So I saved it for this point because the others are fairly weak arguments. This is a pretty strong argument that Christians actually don't deal as much with as they should. It really is. And so I want us to recognize that. Well, Timothy, why would you be presenting the strong – why would you be sp- – presenting strong arguments from from the other side, from people who we disagree with or who disagree with us, the quote-unquote bad guys. Why would you want to do that? Which is something we often don't in our heart want to do. But honestly, and this is just general apologetics, we ought to give the best form and the best expression of our opponent's arguments. That shouldn't be just in apologetics. It's everywhere. But that ought to be common Christian charity. We live in a world in which that's not common Christian charity. And it should be. I mean, we, it should be. It's intellectual honesty and it's common Christian charity. I think this is a really good argument. Now, I think there's something more plausible, but I still think it's a really good argument to make at this point. So let's think about this argument and let's actually really face this particular argument. So the idea is that, as I kind of hinted at earlier, the title for each gospel is similar. Kata plus an accusative with the author's name. That's a fancy way of saying according to Matthew, according to Mark, and so on like that in Greek. So, and some of them have euangelion, kata, matayon, or whatever like that. So gospel according to. But here's the interesting thing. It's not common. In fact, it's extremely rare and virtually unheard of in the ancient world to name a text in that way. That kata, which means according to, plus the author's name is weird. You just don't do that. There are other ways of naming text. That is a really odd way to title a text. So that form is really strange. And you're saying not just in our biblical literature, you're saying in that ancient world in general. You just didn't see this, no no matter where this writing was coming from. It it doesn't matter where it's coming from. Nobody's writing a history or a biography or anything like that and using this kata plus the accusative, this according to and then the author's name. It is just an odd phrasing. And so what we've got to reckon with is where did this phrasing come from? And then if the Gospels were written in different times, different places, how is it that this form matches for all four of them. You see, what you'd expect, if they're written in different times and places, which they certainly are, you'd expect to see that each of them has a slightly different title. Maybe Matthew's gospel is just called the generations of Jesus because it starts with the generations of Jesus. Maybe Mark's gospel would be called something like the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, something, whatever it might be, but it, it would make sense. Or it might be called gospel of the author, okay, that might be, but not according to. It's a really, really strange phrase, and yet it shows up in all four 
of the Gospels. That's a conundrum. It really is. We need to honestly face that. It's an oddity. And here's what Bart Ehrman says happened. Let me just kind of go into what he says happened. He says there was a gathering probably in Rome, but perhaps not, but somewhere in that region in the early second century. And at that point, they declared these four were going to be the Gospels that the church was going to use, and they assigned titles to them. And the copies, the primary copies that were made, trace back to that early second century copy that was a widely used copy. And eventually, it just kind of took over these four titles because of the copies that were circulated there. The way he says it in his book, Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of a New Millennium, he says, when Christians recognized the need for apostolic authorities, they attributed these books to apostles and close companions of apostles. He also works through this in his book, Jesus Before the Gospels. And as I said, this is the strongest argument against Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and authors. It's a pretty strong argument. Yeah, and just to make sure that everyone sees the argument, Ehrman's saying that at some point, the church saw, we need these writings to be authoritative. And if they're going to have authority, then they have to be connected to Jesus. Well, we obviously can't connect them directly to Jesus, so let's connect them as close as we can to his disciples or or disciples of his disciples. And so they figured out a way to make these four the authors that would give them the greatest degree of authority. But question, I know we'll, there's multiple problems with this, I know, but Timothy, if they just chose, right, if they were just going to choose why would they choose two of the Gospels to be attributed to two men who weren't disciples of Jesus? I mean, if they're just going to make it up, why Mark and Luke? Why not other people? I think that's one of the key issues. I really do think it is. I think there's some other issues before we even get to that one. And starting with this one, even if the titles were added later, it doesn't mean the authors were fabricated. That's just really important right up front. Even if we grant Ehrman a lot we need to say he's making a leap here that because they added the titles later and maybe even added them at some sort of a gathering somewhere, okay, any of the, that's possible. That doesn't necessarily necessitate that the authors were fabricated. Maybe they gave these names to them because they actually knew who wrote them, even if they did standardize the title and add them later. So I, I just want to recognize that leap that's being made there that is more of a leap than should be made. So here's just something else. So not only do we have this notion that the fact that just because the titles were added later, even if they were, doesn't mean the authors were fabricated, that here's a real issue. If the Gospels, which they had, they had circulated throughout a significant portion of the Roman Empire this time. I mean, by this point, they had spread quite a ways. By the midpoint of the second century, it's not unreasonable to think they had made it all the way down to Egypt and pretty far west into Europe and certainly into Asia Minor. So there had been a lot of spread in this. And they don't have internet. They don't have a capacity to double check things really quickly or anything like that. These are going to keep spreading, keep moving. So if it spread throughout much of the Roman Empire this time, and if Christians were open to fabricating authors, what we ought to find in the manuscripts is that you might have a manuscript of Matthew's gospel that says gospel according to Andrew on it. And you might find another copy of Matthew's gospel with Matthew's name on it. You might find another copy with somebody else's name on it. We have all these different names that would be showing up that are getting copied in different places. And yet the fact is we don't. Every manuscript of Matthew in which the title survives, it 
says Matthew on it. If a title survives on it, the title on it is according to Matthew or gospel according to Matthew. Same thing with Mark, Luke, and John. Every time you find a manuscript that a title survives, then it's the authors that we have today. And if there was some sort of a meeting in the first century in which they fabricated the names, there would already be competing names out there. There aren't any competing names and titles. There's a Roman Catholic scholar named Brant Petre who says, it is utterly implausible that a book circulating around the Roman Empire without a title for almost 100 years could somehow at some point be attributed to exactly the same author by scribes throughout the world and yet leave no traces of disagreement in any manuscripts. Now, I have the perfect example for this one, and this is Led Zeppelin's fourth album. I mean, the high point of Led Zeppelin, this album, of course, has Stairway to Heaven. And what is the title of Led Zeppelin's fourth album? Isn't it just number four? <laughs> Does it actually have it doesn't, a title? It's, just not even a, it's not even a title. Jimmy Page had each of the members of Led Zeppelin do is create a symbol, and that's all there is for a title is just these four symbols is all there is. So as a result of that, there have been all sorts of titles. I looked through this morning all the different ones, and there are at least, at least six titles for this album that show up, some of them in the official listing by the record company. Led Zeppelin 4 is one of them. Four Symbols is actually one that shows up. The fourth album, Zoso, because that's what Jimmy Page's symbol looked like. It looked like writing the word Zoso. So some people call it the Zoso album. Some people call it Led Zeppelin Untitled, and some people call it Runes. So, okay, this is over far less time in a world with far better communication <laughs> than, than they had back then in the first and second centuries, and yet... If you don't title something, it developed six different titles. Their own record company has two of these listed in the catalog. If that would happen in the 20th century with Led Zeppelin. Yeah, where some of the members are still alive. Exactly. Right? Then, yeah. Yeah. Then it's certainly going to be worse in the age. Well, even look even much more recent Metallica's fifth album. What is the name of Metallica's fifth album? Technically, that album is named Metallica, but we don't ever call it Metallica. We call it the Black Album. not say the Metallica Metallica album. Nobody says that. That's in a world today where we have the interwebs to be able to correct these things. And yet we do that. So think about if those happen with Metallica and Led Zeppelin, what's going to happen to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yeah. And to me, it seems that that argument is particularly applicable to, again, Mark and Luke. As these gospels make their way through the early Christian world that if this was how it worked, where Christians were just fine slapping a name on it because they needed an authority, someone at some point is going to be like, ah, 
listen, not Luke or Mark. There's just there's way better choices here. Like, let's pick one of the 12. OK, but the fact that we don't have that out there, I think, again, we always got to be careful with arguments from silence, though Airman's making a bunch of arguments from silence. So maybe we just say our argument from silence is better. But I think it's a significant point. Yeah, it is. So, okay, here are the problems with this. And you said earlier, you think there are more plausible explanations. So what would those be? So I think there's one of two. I'm going to lay out both of those. I'm probably not even going to say which one I prefer. But, uh, but well, I'm just going to lay out two. There are two possibilities that make way more sense. Number one, I'd be willing to grant, say, look, there was a copy, maybe in Rome, maybe in that region there, of all four Gospels from which many other copies were made that standardized the titles in that unique and distinct form. But the authors were already known. And so when other churches got this text, they weren't like, oh, that's who wrote that. I didn't know that. And started, no, they realized, oh, okay, I'm going to conform our title to that because of the fact that we already knew who wrote it. We already knew who wrote it. That's a possibility. That grants Ehrman this notion of a kind of a master copy from which the others were made. Now, there's another possibility as well. And I do lean toward this one. I think either one is possible, but I lean this toward this one. This is from a scholar named Martin Hengel, and I think it makes a lot of sense. He argues that Mark's gospel was titled Gospel According to Mark, maybe not by Mark himself, but very, very, very early. As soon as it began to get under circulation, it just Gospel According to Mark became very quickly the title. And the other gospels, as they were written, just followed the familiar pattern. That makes a lot of sense because, see, the thing is we know that Matthew and Luke had copies of Mark's gospel because they use massive portions of Mark's gospel. So we know they had it. And so we know that if it had a title, that they saw that title. It also, I would contend that John's gospel, that John was actually familiar with Mark's gospel because there are times that I think John is actually, he's clarifying some points with Mark's chronology, but that's another discussion. But nonetheless, we do know at least that Matthew and Luke both had access to Mark's gospel. It would make sense if, in fact, he had titled it a certain way that they followed the pattern. And then that brings us to what we've hinted at a couple of times, the issue that does not fit, cannot fit, Bart Ehrman's reconstruction. If you're fabricating authors, making it up to bolster authority, are these the names you choose? John, yeah, you would. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, not the most prominent disciple. I mean, he's a very, he's kind of in the background. So even Matthew is not the one I would choose, but especially you get to Mark. I mean, let's think about Mark for a moment. If I'm wanting to connect Mark to Peter, first off, I'm just going to say, call it gospel according to Peter, if I'm going to try to fabricate that. But not only that, think about Mark. Acts chapter 15, he abandons Paul. I know that he was later reconciled, but Mark is the guy who abandons Paul. This is not the guy who I want to lead with as the author of the gospel, despite his reconciliation, but especially above all of them, Luke. Because what Ehrman says is that they made up this connection to Luke to connect this gospel to Paul. There are some people who would be way better qualified to make it up with than that. If I want to claim Paul's authority for this gospel, why not? If nothing else, if I'm willing just to make stuff up, gospel according to Paul. Gospel according to Timothy. Why not gospel according to Timothy, Paul? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So that would be great. Gospel according to Titus. Uh, There is so many. Luke is mentioned three times in the entire New Testament. Why would you connect it to Luke in particular? Here's what I think is beautiful. His obscurity 
becomes an argument for the truthfulness of his words. I just think it's really cool. In the economy of God's working in history, that Luke's obscurity becomes evidence of the truth of what he said. And that's one of the reasons why I think that it makes sense for us to say Luke probably really did write this book. Yeah, it's very similar to the point that we make just on the reliability of the witness of the Gospels in general, right? That if these were stories that you were going to fabricate to support a belief, a faith, a religion, whatever you want to call it, that you know is not authentic, is not genuine, right? That that you are fabricating this for your own personal gain or whatever. There are accounts and stories in the Gospels, I mean, let's be real, all throughout Scripture that you just wouldn't put in there, that actually outside of the economy of God (laughs) would work against this purpose you have of building a story that are going to incite people to the Christian faith. And so it's very much the similar thing here. It just doesn't make the most sense. And paradoxically, that makes it more genuine in our opinion. Right. And you could think about this a lot of different. I mean, you kind of hinted at this, but you don't put Mary Magdalene as the first witness at the tomb if you're fabricating stuff. You just don't put a woman. I mean, in in the ancient world, in Roman context, a woman could testify in court only in a rare set of circumstances. In Jewish court, she couldn't testify at all. You're going to put her as the first witness? That makes no sense whatsoever. In the same way, Luke, if you're going to make up an author of the gospel, you're not going to make up Luke. There's a lot of people you're going to choose a long time before you ever get down the list to Luke's name. You're going to get through a lot of other people first, unless, of course— you actually knew that Luke wrote it. And then that would make sense if you were interested in truth. (laughs) And that's why I think the Gospels are plausibly written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yep. If you're trying to build a kingdom, you know not to be the kingdom of God, right? Not to be based upon this divine act that we believe it to be. Luke is a terrible gospel to write. You need wealthy, influential people on your side to build this empire. And Luke, mm, his gospel isn't a friend to the wealthy and influential, right? In fact, it can be quite offensive to that group of folks. Luke's gospel emphasizes over and over the marginalized, the poor, the marginalized, the poor, and the spirit is active on behalf of the marginalized and poor. Again, the content of Luke's gospel actually would be something you wouldn't want. You don't want his name. You don't want his content unless, of course, he's really an associate of the Apostle Paul who actually did write this, and you're trying to tell the truth. Then it makes sense. It only makes sense if they're trying to tell the truth at this point with Luke's gospel in particular. Yeah, because these gospels did have, we believe, right, in God's providence, they did shape and form the kind of church that we had after the apostles. And it was largely for several hundred years, a church of the outcast, the oppressed, not entirely, but it, but it was not a favored, wealthy, well-resourced movement. And this, again, we believe that that was by design, right? That God has and is blessing the world, that he is in these people's weakness and oppression and brokenness, he has built something beyond our imagination. And so we think it's by design. It's just not the way that a human, merely only humans, would have designed it and put together if they did it on their own.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. It's what I'm